Yeah, we could do, you know, one of our 60-second bullet hits. Yeah, right. I don't think so. I don't think so. It'll probably only take a half hour longer. Whenever we try and make this podcast shorter, it ends up being longer. So I just I no longer try and make it shorter because it just scares me. That will probably do it. Yeah. What's the story with this Air Canada guy? All right. Let me tell you the story. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jeb. You were going to say something? I was just going to say, you know, from my perspective, um, and you folks know my morning routine is not uh, a rushed one, a hurried one. Um from my perspective, it's uh, what I would literally call a rude awakening. Yeah, here's my here's what my, here's what I thought of when I saw this story. Okay, everybody knows that I like to go on lo- long road trips in my car. All right, I will drive for like eighteen hours at a time in my car. I mean, you know, except for gas and bathroom breaks. Right, and and when you drive eighteen hours at a time, you end up driving a lot after dark when you're kind of getting tired. Okay, and and and. I guess probably everybody does this from time to time, and I confess that I do it, which is that you reach a point where you're really, really exhausted, and you're but it, and it's dark and the lonely road, and you're kind of getting hypnotized a little bit by the by the uh, the uh, yellow line or the, uh, the the white line, and and you're fighting to stay awake. All right, and and that, every now and past time stop. It is, but. But we all do it, okay? And and what'll happen is that you'll you'll be driving along and you're kind of starting to fall asleep, and then you'll kind of like force yourself. You just shock yourself awake, okay? And that's like you say, that's time to know that it's time to to pull over, okay? So then I'll pull over, and here's the problem, all right? I'll pull into some well lit kind of you know active uh, rest area in order to take a nap, all right? I will recline the seat in my car. All right, the driver's seat of my car, and I will close my eyes. And more than once during every one of these naps, all right, I will suddenly snap awake, grab the steering wheel, like, oh my God, I fell asleep, you know. And and it makes me nervous. I think like I shouldn't sleep, I shouldn't nap in the driver's seat of my car because I'm inadvertently yeah. training mm-hmm. myself to that it's okay to fall asleep while I'm driving yeah. my car. Right. Yeah. yeah. There's a there's a solution to all this. What's that? It's called a hotel. Yeah, no. It's like, well, okay. So now we've got this Air Canada guy, all right? And one of the things that jumped out at me of the story is that they were just totally upfront about the fact that he was taking yeah. a nap. Yeah. That I I agree. That's the whole the, the whole story is kind of refreshing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In a way. <laughs> So let's just kind of refresh people's memories about what this story is here. Let's see now. Uh, oh my God! So it starts out with a uh, the link from from the forums, and then if I go to the news yahoo story that uh, a listener pointed us to, it's a Reuters uh, a story on Yahoo News. A sleepy Air Canada pilot first mis- mistook the planet Venus for an aircraft, and then sent his airliner diving towards the Atlantic to prevent an imaginary collision with another airplane. Uh, let's see now. Uh, under quote, under the effects of significant sleep inertia, the first officer perceived the oncoming aircraft to be on a collision course. I mean, I'm looking for the the money quote here is talking about how he was taking a nap. This story doesn't show that. Let's see now. Well, do you guys have in, a story? Oh, in reading this a little bit more closely, yeah. Uh, this is eerily reminiscent of a midair collision over Eastern Europe several years ago. Uh huh. Um. I don't remember all the details. One of the jets was a, 
a Russian cargo jet. The other was, uh, I don't know, maybe a 767, 737, something like that. But they're basically um, oncoming head-on you know, courses, roughly head-on courses, but a thousand feet separation. Right. And it's not night. And uh, against the controller and against the TCAS, the crew of one of the jets um, climbed or descended, whatever it was, into the path of the other one, and the two collided. Mm-hmm. The, the punchline in all of that, and it seems like that's what's going on here. Ultimately, there's, there's the, the initial mistaken identity of Venus for that, the, the traffic that was called to them. Um, but this is a classic um, visual, um, 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 uh, visual. Uh, it's an optical classic, illusion. It's an classic, op- yeah, cla- thank you. Classic visual illusion. Night, moving lights. Um, it's hard to pick out a horizon. You can't tell if the light is above you or below you, and you make the wrong choice. Right. And, and I don't know if it applies here. There's the other optical illusion. We talked about this on the podcast some time ago. That there's a weird optical illusion when you're up at the flight levels that. You know, we sort of in, almost instinctively think that the that the horizon is level, all right, from us, all right. And but when you're at the flight levels, the horizon isn't the point that's level. The her, level is a little above the horizon, and as a result, you can get confused about whether an oncoming aircraft is above you or below you. And and as it corrects in your optical illusion, it, you, it can frighten that's, you. That's why Sporty sells those little telescope things to help guys judge cloud levels. Because if you're at 15,000 feet, a point level in front of you is 15,000 feet off the ground. Right, right, exactly, right. yeah. yeah. It's, but think about this. You just said something, though, that has been in the back of my mind the whole time that this has been playing. Two things. Venus has been just immensely bright for weeks. On the ground, immensely mm-hmm. bright. Mm-hmm. Imagine how bright and powerful that must look. Uh, at, at flight levels at night uh, and you've just awakened and your eyes are already you know dilated like four times highway size uh, because you're night flying up and there, there's nothing out there to reflect any light back pale dim lights in the cockpit you wake up from a nap and you see a stationary object in front of you that just gets brighter the longer you look at it well you know don't we talk about how the object that's going to hit you just gets bigger in in the windscreen. Mm-hmm. Right, doesn't right. move all that much relative. Then there's that horizon thing that you're talking about, and him not understanding that the C-17 he knew about was below. Uh, wow, I, I don't find it hard at all to to find that a, a real freakazoid moment and yeah. mm-hmm. thinking, boy, I'm glad that the captain wasn't napping too. Yeah, yeah well, well, yeah. Um, so this is a better story. This is CNN.com has a little bit more more detail. First of all, it starts out with basically the same story I told. They told it a little more tersely. But uh, it, it's happened to most of us. We suddenly wake up and find ourselves disoriented, wondering where we are, et cetera, et cetera. Um, let's see now. It says uh, the... The the first officer on Air Canada Flight 878 from Toronto to Zurich, Switzerland, was tired and needed a nap. The, quote, controlled rest, end quote, is legal and an accepted procedure in order to improve the on-the-job performance and alertness. With the captain's permission, the first officer drifted off for a few Zs. While the nap is supposed to last for no more than 40 minutes, the first officer slept for 75 minutes and woke up feeling unwell, the report states. Uh, By that time, the captain had turned on the 
seatbelt sign for some unexpected tur turbulence, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There was a C-17, the, uh, and then I'm paraphrasing here, the first officer got confused, like we were saying. So he apparently just pushed hard on the stick or the yoke. And, uh, oh, yeah, he made a bunch of people in the back. Uh, he gave them the uh, zero-G yeah. ride. Right, right. Yeah, so, well, okay. I, I guess there's, I don't know, <laughs> having a hard time and finding... the C-17 passing underneath you, it got worse from that push. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, it's, uh, it's, it's an odd situation. I guess all's well that ends well, I don't know. Well, I, um, I don't know. I, I, I don't fly in the flight levels routinely. It's not so, clear to me whether he took this nap sitting in the right seat or whether he went yeah, that's, back. Somewhere. That's the impression I get. Yeah, me uh, too. Which I think is a mistake, you know, given my story about about you know my concerns with training myself that it's okay to sleep in the seat of my car. Um, but uh, yeah, no, that's where he was. He was he was sitting in the first officer's chair on the flight deck. And it wasn't so much that he suddenly snapped awake and made a judgment when he wasn't really awake yet. Or, or he in made those. a judgment a few seconds after he snapped awake, and he still wasn't really well-oriented from yeah, the well, sound. Yeah, well, this is also true, I know for a fact. So this whole 40-minute sleep nap versus 75-minute nap thing is, is very real for me. Is, uh, yeah, it is. You know, you, you, for me, it's 20 minutes. If I nap for more than 20 or 30 minutes, that's when my my body goes into deep sleep and I wake yeah, up I'm really cranky. Yeah, I'm the same way. Man. I, I, real cranky. I just don't nap well. But the 40-minute limit is supposed to ostensibly keep them from getting into deeper right. sleep cycle, from which it's going to be more difficult and take longer to recover, you know, to get back to full alertness. Uh, but I'm betting, you know, about the time the captain got it back to assigned altitude that he was fully awake by then. <laughs> I, 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 I bet everybody on that plane was. I yeah. bet they were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I bet they were. Hey, listen, uh, welcome, folks, to episode 283 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. Clear. You're going to be hearing a little bit of background noise throughout the day, but it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's not really good noise. good background noise. That's yeah, right. this, is, right. this is the best seat in the house. We got Skyriders now. We got Skyriders. We got Skyriders now. Sky now. Yeah. Does that say UCAP? I can't. It's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> and you're on site, clear west. Turkey National Ground, good afternoon, sir. Taxi via Foxtrot and Delta. Recording this episode on uh, Thursday, April 19, I think, 2012. And uh, joining me here in the virtual hangar, my two good friends, Dave Higdon's out there from uh, Wichita, Kansas. Hey, David, how you doing? I'm doing great. Oh, doing I just great. remembered what I want to ask you about. I'm going to come back to it in a second, though. Okay. Um, well, while, we were, well, while we were talking about this, I found an old undiscovered lyric from the uh, Frankie Avalon song from back in the 50s. Venus said, oh, Venus, please send me a pilot I can thrill, a groggy skybound guy with stand, sand still in his eyes to freak. Not I really. Is that really I the line? That on the, I never heard that one on the radio. That's great. That's great. Hey, also out there is Jeb Burnside talking to us uh, from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. How are you doing tonight, Jeb? I'm fine. Um, finished up a project today and kind of licking my wounds from that. And got a couple more here before I can take a few days off. Yeah, cool. So, uh, yeah, good day. And uh, sun is, you know, I've been trying to get rain all all week long. And all of a sudden it started to rain a little bit. And now the sun is shining. It looks like... Uh, 
a little weather we were getting uh, has finally blown through. Yeah, I saw um, you posted a tweet or a Facebook or something or other that's, yeah, you know, yeah. where you were saying, oh, we were so looking forward to the rain, and then it just completely fizzled. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it's still um, so pretty... We got a little bit out of... Still pretty droughty down there. It looks there. like it's... It's dry, pretty droughty. Yeah. The, the, the lake is low. The lake is low. That's right. And I'm Jack Hodgson, and uh, I am once again coming to you from the temporary HQ on the evergreen slopes of Garrison Hill in Dover, New Hampshire. Uh, David, the thing I wanted to ask you about, I, and I, can, I should have put this on the list, but I guess it doesn't matter. Uh, you had some weather adventure there a couple of days ago. Oh, yeah. Oh, it got exciting here Saturday night. My goodness. I mean, you gave us a little scare. I'm Not you personally, but the Wichita area, the, these storms. You, you had a tornado, a serious tornado, a damaging tornado. That we you actually t- had quite, we had multiple tornadoes in Kansas that evening. And did you tell me that, that at least one of them passed within two miles of your home? Just a little over two miles uh, southeast of us, uh, the closest it came. And uh, that's as the crow flies, sort of. Uh, There was a time about 45 minutes earlier when the track looked like it was going to come directly through our neighborhood. And that was the line the meteorologists were projecting. And we'd kind of gathered up, you know, bottled water and snack bars and extra batteries, flashlight and yada, yada, getting ready to take the pets into the, uh, into the safe room in the interior of the house. And then the system got to this rise in the terrain southwest of Wichita Mid-Continent and I shouldn't be surprised by now. It's done this multiple times in the 21 years we've been here. It it wobbled mm-hmm. when it got to that spot. And in this case, it wobbled a little bit more northeasterly, went, went a little more east of the track that it was on, and basically picked up the same line that it followed when we had an EF5 tornado come through here in April of 1991 that came to be called the Andover Tornado. Mm-hmm. I mean, just in lockstep, man, like really? walking behind somebody in a snowfield right up the line. Uh, <clears throat> fortunately, it wasn't as powerful a storm, uh, EF3, which is still pretty gnarly mm-hmm. uh, and lots of damage somewhere in the neighborhood of $300 million. Now, it, it uh, apparently beat up uh, Spirit Aerosystems pretty good. Beat them up, and they're looking to be back on the job and producing... 737 barrels and struts in the cells starting Monday. Uh, they were sometime just getting gas and power, st- uh, electric power back uh, square there. Uh, it nicked uh, Boeing Wichita's uh, military operation, which is just east across the street from Spirit. Uh, it trashed some of the airplanes, some of the uh, artifact airplanes, unfortunately, at the uh, Kansas Aviation Museum. Mm which is uh, kind of diagonal across McConnell Air Force Base from where Boeing and Spirit sit. Mm-hmm. Uh, upended a, uh, a Cessna O2 that had flown combat in, in, in Vietnam. Uh, they're saying they think it's a total loss. Mm. Uh, I'm wondering if it can't be repaired to display condition because uh, I don't think they had any plans to fly it anyway. So airworthiness would be less of an issue. But it also apparently damaged uh, one of the only non-destroyed beach starships that still exists. Oh, really? Really? It's on, it's on display there. But uh, apparently it's salvageable. Uh, so 
that was good news. A uh, B-47 bomber apparently rode out the weather just fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, but it, it, it wreaked havoc. Uh, and because we'd been getting, you know, take this seriously, no blowing snow, storm warnings about the severity of this puppy for about 72 hours. Oh, uh, okay. Really? Uh, yeah, uh, we started seeing stuff on uh, the nationals like the Weather Channel uh, and some of the evening news programs that didn't talk about Kansas specifically, but about how the Midwest was in for this big system as the jet stream was shifting and meeting a bunch of uh, uh, warm, moist air from the Gulf of Mexico. And it was expected to really turn into a Donnybrook when it got on the uh, on the east side of the uh, Rockies. Well, that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so by Friday, by Friday afternoon, we were getting forecast down to the approximate one-hour, two-hour band when we should expect the worst of this weather to transit the area. And mm-hmm. I mean, they had this plotted out, you know, marching east from the Colorado line. Uh, the Oklahoma Panhandle, uh, uh, northeast New Mexico, the Texas Panhandle, and moving east on about a four-hour window basis mm-hmm. yeah. for about the next 16 hours. And the next morning, it was already starting to happen out west of here. Right, right. It's just a matter of that point of how much ahead or behind schedule that it arrived. And it was within 20 minutes, I'd say, of being within the window that they talked about. Yeah. Wow. Let me let me just point out here that that although we're very curious to hear about the aviation damage, we we're, we don't mean to make light of the fact that a lot of people lost uh, you know regular everyday things, their homes and 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 whatnot. Hundreds, hundreds of people lost their homes. Yeah, uh, very very sad. Tens you know. of thousands were without power. Uh, they finally got. Remember, this was Saturday evening. Uh, the last few hundred were supposed to be powered up today, mm-hmm. uh, but the recovery work is still going on. Uh, and the uh, community has pulled pulled really well together. They've had uh, points where they actually had to ask volunteers to come back at a later period because they they were loaded up with volunteers and really didn't even have more stuff they could assign them to do. Yeah. So uh, there's been good rotation there. A lot of money being raised to help the folks get back on their feet. Uh, the, uh, the the disaster. Uh, area application is on file. I think that declaration has happened. Uh, it's uh, it, it's been worse. It was bad, but it's been worse. Mm-hmm. And for that, everybody's you know kind of going, you know, not bad. A lot more people took it seriously mm-hmm. in Sedgwick County, Kansas, where we where Wichita is located, has in the last several months been updating its uh, emergency storm alert siren systems mm-hmm. so that instead of 100 and I think it's 174 of them throughout the county instead of them all going on at the same time regardless of where the actual threat location is they've got them broken down now into zones and they can pick and choose which zones in the county to light up so that it doesn't become one of these cry wolf things for people that are miles from where the threat right. actually exists right. right? because they'll be sitting there they'll hear the sirens they'll start to go underground uh they'll hang around and wow well, it, it it just never got bad here yeah 
Yeah. But this this time, it was very specific to the parts of the county. Our neighborhood had the sirens go off. Uh, but a mile north of us, uh, uh, the, the sections of the county started to taper off that they were actually alerting. So uh, a lot of technology went into this uh, that's been developed in the last few years, and they're really good at using it. Good. That's good to know. Well, I'm glad the damage wasn't worse than it was, and uh, and uh, you know, with all respect to the civilians, if you will, I'm glad that the aviation damage was somewhat limited. Uh, although those those rep those uh, museum pieces, that's sad. Well, we've uh, we've been dodging this kind of bullet all year because there have been some rather significant storm systems generate some killer tornadoes from systems that passed through as early as February. And those all didn't really mature into in, in, into twister generators until they got just east of us. Mm-hmm. They grew up and they grew up west of us. They created rain and wind, but they didn't actually reach their peak power until they were east of us and still gaining strength. So we've uh, we we've, we've been really fortunate here, and you know, with a little luck and a little good karma. Uh, maybe we'll keep being lucky for yeah. a long time to come. And uh, yeah. before we move on, I just uh, uh, UCAP's favorite uh, Wichita airport, uh, Dead Cow, came through okay? Dead Cow was okay. Uh, it's close enough to the southeast side of Mid-Continent Airport that when that little wobble happened, uh, that sent the storm basically just past them to the south. Mm-hmm. So, the you know, the leprechaun probably could have been watching it from out from the, from from his office window, uh, but probably no closer than a mile to the south of him. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. Let's see now what's going on here. Okay. Let's get this over with. This is the first story on the list. Has to do with light squared. David, you posted an item here where you say a silver lining from the cloud that was light squared. What do you mean? Well, the. Uh, the the, the the death knell issue for light squared was from the beginning its ability to interfere with GPS receivers ability to hear the satellite signal. Right. Uh, satellites are if I remember this correctly, I just had it on the screen a couple of days ago, about twelve thousand miles up in orbiting in all these different planes. Okay. And so well, it's not a very strong signal, and it travels 12,000 miles and goes through miles of atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And so what the GPS navigators have to listen for is a fairly weak signal, and the light-squared ground transmitters were capable of drowning out that signal. Right. Okay. That's interference, right? Yeah. What's another word for interference? Jamming. I was going to say Dave Higdon, but okay. Yeah, well, that would be good, uh, but... There have been there have been a lot of people question this plan to rely solely on GPS and a little bit of legacy ground-based nav system uh, in the next gen era that's supposed to be starting. You know, it's supposed to be taking over in 2020. Right. And the lack of a backup, which could have been built on the old Loran system, with something called Eloran. Right. Nobody wanted to talk about it. It was going to be more complicated. It was going to cost money. It was going to take time to design and approve receivers, navigation boards, basically, 
that could do both, and they've already been in use in Europe in some instances. So that's always seemed like kind of a, a straw dog. Well, the light squared issue, it's interference. It's indirectly, in an unintentional jamming of GPS receivers has suddenly got people going, uh, wow, I guess it is easier than we were thinking and could be really widespread really easy, and maybe we do need a GPS backup. So what and are they coming up with? E-Loran back into discussion. Oh, okay. Uh, a couple not, of major avionics magazines have been talking about it. Yeah. Jeb, go ahead. Not only do we need a GPS backup, but GPS itself uh, is getting to be rather dated technology. This is what I've been think, saying for months now. Think, go ahead, Think Jeb. about this. GPS has really been out there about 20 years. Uh, it, it started becoming popular in the early 90s. Uh, you started to see, you know, the Garmin um, GPS 92 handheld. It was about the size of a then common cell phone, um, and uh, you know, obviously, a lot of a lot has changed since then. But that's when GPS first really started taking off. We're starting to see some of the downsides of the technology. We're starting to see, you know, hey, yeah, it can be jammed. Uh, yeah, it's it's um, um, low power. Uh, yeah, it's it's got a few other you know tricks up its sleeve that we we you know may or may not uh, have to compensate for. To, <coughs> excuse me, compensate for down the road. So I'm starting. To, I personally, anyway, starting to wonder if maybe you know we should really be talking about a successor to GPS. I don't know that that's Eloran. I don't know that it's not. Um, but it strikes me that when we start uncovering these kinds of problems, we need to start thinking about a larger scale solution. Yeah, and and basically what I've been trying been been, been saying, but uh, for a couple of I don't know years, certainly months now, is whether or not we should be thinking about an alternative. I predict that an alternative will appear in the mm-hmm. same way that GPS kind of sprung up out of nowhere to right. replace Loran. So, uh, so David, yeah, you well, think this Eloran has a chance? You you kind of follow avionics pretty pretty actively. I, I think it I think it has a chance if it's actually developed to its potential, and and it's not going to let you use the old bricks that are still in a lot of used airplanes. You know that's the most useless piece of type in a used airplane ad. You so know, the fact that I've been Loran, buying up got, old Lorans isn't going to do me any good, is what you're saying? It's got, got a Loran in it. E Loran doesn't work on exactly this it, it's a low frequency a very low frequency signal like Loran but it's digital uh it has some other elements tucked into the signal uh it's you know the the the, the RF experts that I've talked to and read over the years consider Loran virtually unjammable because of its long wave characteristics mm-hmm. uh okay that's good that's a start whether E-Loran, as it's been developed in Europe, is exactly the answer or some kind of hybrid that employs both. The way some of the early area nav receivers used a computer to, you know, calculate different VOR signals and triangulate them and help you pinpoint where you were long before we had Loran receivers small enough to fit into boxes. So, um but an alternative really needs to be out there, and I'm sorry, but retaining a basic network of DME stations and TACANs and ILSs at key airports, does that sound like a backup to build a national system on? No. Not. 
No. Hardly, not hardly. Yeah. So, well, that's interesting. We should keep an eye on this. Jeb, did you want to add anything? No, I, I did a recent article. I didn't write it. Um, I think it was in the April issue of Aviation Safety. But it basically talked about this exact same thing, where there, for some reason there's a systemic GPS failure. Whether, you know, forget the reason. Um, we'd be in a world of hurt. Yeah, yeah. And I uh, think, especially when we happen to be airborne at the time, right? That's a whole other. Yeah, issue. and I it, it, go ahead. Go ahead, Jack. I'm sorry. I was just going to say that that I, I think one of the candidates for for uh, the next you know way of positioning yourself is sort of what you alluded to, Dave, with the uh, sensing VORs and and you know all these kinds of things, and 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 sort of a, a, a another version of the alternate location technology that's in a lot of our uh, our, our our smartphones and our tablets where uh, in addition to gps it 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 listens to the airwaves and hears things like wi-fi base stations and cell phone towers and and you make a good point it, these these av- aviation boxes could be listening for vor signals and you know uh, uh ILS, I mean, all this radio nav that's going on, and and you know they just need to get smart enough to use all this this noise, if you will. I make finger quotes um, well, the, to, to place yourself. The Russians put up their own satellite. Got those as well. Yeah. yeah, right. We've got one, and then we've got this tremendous Loran back backbone. I mean, there's coverage coming across the Atlantic uh, over the vast majority of North America. Uh, the stations are relatively simple and inexpensive to erect compared to putting satellites in orbit. Uh, and if you, you know, this, this is not my idea. It's not even a new idea. Hell, it was being talked about five, six, seven years ago. Receivers that combine all three navigation sources so that at any given moment they're able to reference two against one another and pick the best two and then use the, the results of those to give you a pinpoint, uh, this was even before WASP was uh, uh, actually fully functional, uh, that they were talking about this as one way to help improve the precision and the redundancy and the depth, and it would make everybody's receivers usable everywhere on, on Earth, uh, no matter what ground-based augmentation they might have. They'd still be able to use the, the, the basic two satellite systems and the Loran Earth stations. So. Right. So, is anybody uh, talking about building a box that uses any of these alternate positioning technologies? No. It has been talked about. Uh, it has been, I believe, played with some in Europe. Okay. Any, uh, any, what, any manufacturers in particular, or, or just 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 you know messing around, prototyping? I, I'd need to go back and find old old stuff to to do that. I just remember talking to guys at an AEA convention years ago where okay. they were talking. About the uh, the uh, idea of using E-Loran, which was in development in Europe at the time, as a, a substitute for Loran and building boxes. And at that time, 10, 12 years ago, it was going to be relatively simple to incorporate both kinds of technology into a single box. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, basically, okay. it was all going to be on a card. And then it used a common computer to help deliver the information right. so that it didn't have to have two completely different operating systems. Right. Uh, but I don't know where it went. Uh, the U.S. kind of, you know, said, no, nah, no, we're going to do better than that. We're going to go all GPS and wide no, area augmentation, yeah. ground-based augmentation. Uh, 
we'll, we'll have everything covered except the jamming potential. Yeah, well, we'll keep an eye on this. I think it's I think it's pretty interesting stuff. And 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 you're right. I think we've learned that we don't want to rely totally on GPS for a lot of different reasons. Moving on. Um, very, very sad story uh, that is just breaking this afternoon, and so we know really nothing, uh, very, very little about what's going on here. Which but, has never stopped us. Before. Yeah, I know. And uh, But so we'll start out with all the caveats. Um, this is brand new. We don't know exactly what happened here. We really, we're only going to speculate the tiniest bit, and we're going to try and be very, very uh, general about this. Um, a, uh, a small plane, um, apparently a Cessna 421, 421, was uh, uh, apparently transiting from something like Louisiana, uh, New Orleans. Slidell, Slidell, Louisiana. Thank you. Uh, to, coincidentally, Sarasota is what I saw. Um, and out over the Gulf uh, became unresponsive, uh, and uh, they sent up some jets to take a look at it, and uh, nobody was responding in this aircraft, and uh, it it kind of wandered around apparently in literally in circles for a little while and up and down uh, until it something happened that caused it to I'm going to sit finger quotes again crash into the uh, Gulf. Um, uh, where there was no sign of anyone trying to escape the aircraft, and it uh, the, the odds are the odds on reason for it descending and and landing at a normal attitude in the Gulf, as as the report said, uh, is fuel starvation. There was nobody at the control to switch tanks. Right. Ultimately, I would that that would be my guess too. And again, keep in mind we're just guessing here. Um, fuel starvation. The, the telling report that I saw um, was that the fighter jets that eyeballed this thing reported that the windows were frosted over. And if that's a, an accurate observation, this is reminiscent to me, anyways, of the uh, the Payne Stewart business jet um, crash tragedy. Exactly. A bunch of years ago, exactly. um, where uh, the uh, the uh, professional golfer Payne Stewart was traveling in his private jet with some others um, between two locations across the continental U.S., and this exact kind of thing happened. The aircraft became unresponsive. Um, it did not circle. Apparently, it just kept on a straight course. Um, but reports were that the uh, windows were frosted over, and apparently, windows can frost over when the cabin suddenly decompresses and so these are the things that popped through my mind when i saw this story i did check look to see whether or not a 420 i'm not familiar with a 421 you guys are obviously probably pretty familiar but it it is apparently a pressurized aircraft correct oh yeah it's it's a pressurized twin yeah and uh, uh, and this was all happening up at 25 35,000 feet so that that part's got me curious because uh this is a piston airplane with turbocharged naturally Right. As a matter of fact, it's geared Continentals. Uh, uh, 325 horse. Uh, it's rare for a, a turbocharged piston engine to be getting much above 25. Uh, although I'm, I'm sure that it's done. I mean, we know people that have done it on record attempts and such. But I didn't think 420. 421s were into the 30,000 feet range. I don't think um, so either. I, I don't know anything about 421s either. What I do know is everything that Dave just said is accurate. Um, 30,000 feet's the listed service. Thir- yeah, I was going to say 20 or 30 is probably the listed service ceiling. Um, but remember that a service ceiling is is done on a gross weight basis. So right. um, 
by definition, this airplane was lighter. Apparently, it only had one person aboard uh, and presumably full gas, and that would put it, you know, I don't know, 421, at least 1,200, maybe 1,500 pounds below gross, uh, depending on what else was on the airplane. Um, I, what happened here is, is anyone's guess. I mean, there's a um, FlightAware uh, track map that's I'm sure you've seen. It's been it's widely circulated. It's the airplane's literally out over the Gulf of Mexico in route to Sarasota from from the New Orleans area, um, looking like a perfect great circle route. Makes a wide sweeping right turn, um, and then starts making a series of left turns. Apparently. Um, each you're basically trying to make a concentric circle, a constant rate of bank, for example. But of course, the wind is pushing the airplane to the east. It's a westerly wind. It's pushing the airplane to the east. So you have a lot of circles that are loops, if you will, that are intersecting each other, but proceeding and trending to the east. And it's a very peculiar pattern. There's one point at which it 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 changes. The the bank angle changes. There's something uh, aboard the airplane changes. And then it returns to its its former uh, bank angle or, or or other state and continues to make these loops. It makes six or eight of them after that before it basically disappears from the track. Um, you know, it makes this me is wonder. A real head scratcher. Yeah, David. Makes me wonder what what the autopilot was supposed to be running off of. It makes well, me wonder if the autopilot was even engaged and it no, was I'm, just I'm, basically I'm, trimmed out. Yeah. What, what I'm kind of wondering here is, is what kind of autopilot it had, first of all. Um, certain, some autopilots have a knob on them you can use to bank the airplane. You can right. literally fly the airplane left, right with that knob without having to touch the yoke. My airplane does not have such knobs. So I'm, I'm kind of speculating. But um, the other thing that's odd here is if, in fact, this first turn, in this case, which appears to be to the right, if, in fact, this first turn was something that the pilot started and he's like, oh, oh crap, I just lost my pressurization system. I need to turn around. Well, that's not the first thing you need to do. Mm. Um, no, that's true. Uh, that's, there's a whole different set of, set of problems when you've lost pressurization. But he turned to the right. And it's, I think, a demonstrated propensity for pilots sitting in the left of an airplane to turn to the left if yep. they have a choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but this airplane turned to the right. So I don't know what this means. I'm, I'm guessing there's you know, obviously a pressurization problem. Obviously, uh, the pilot was incapacitated. Why the airplane turned to the right and then started turning to the left? Maybe the guy was not fully unconscious I, I don't know. Yeah. Another another interesting thing to me anyways was that when this thing finally whatever ran out of gas or whatever caused it to descend, um it did not contact the the surface of the gulf in a catastrophic way. Um right. apparently it kind of kind of landed, all right? That's and, the auto that's the autopilot at work. You think? Okay. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, there was a there was an incident here in Kansas a few years ago, several years ago now where a doctor, a cardiologist, if I remember right, from Great Bend, Kansas, a few miles to the north-northwest of us, uh, went to the airport, found his uh, Comanche 400 in the hangar, uh, figured that an annual 
had been finished, and without checking with the mechanic, he pulled the airplane out, took off, and was headed to, I believe, Kansas City downtown for a convention, uh, some kind of medical society meeting. He's got the altitude hole engaged. He's got it, I believe, on a DG. It's tracking the, D- the directional gyro. That's what the autopilot is holding for lateral navigation. Uh, shortly into the flight, he was overcome by carbon monoxide poisoning because, in fact, there was a problem with the airplane's exhaust system that it was waiting on parts to be fixed. But since he didn't talk to the mechanic, the guy passed out. Uh, 400 Comanche has a fairly more involved fuel system than the 180 and 250 because uh, it's a 120-gallon fuel supply, multiple tanks, yada, yada. Since he wasn't conscious to change tanks, the engine died of fuel starvation when the tank ran dry and the airplane descended. Trim, level, wings perfect mm-hmm. into a field. It missed a high-tension line came over some high-tension wires, came over a fence, went under a telephone wire, landed on its belly in a field, and slid across the field until it impacted a fence line. Guy got out a few minutes later, his head ringing, a broken wrist, no freaking idea how he'd gotten in that field. Man, send that guy out to buy some lottery tickets. My. Oh, tell me. The I, doctors... I remember that. That was about 20 years ago, as I recall. Yeah. I talked to the guy, uh, and uh, the doctors that examined him said his carbon monoxide, his, his pulse oxygen level was so out of whack that if he had had another 15 to 20 minutes worth of gas, they would have found a dead man in the cabin. Mm-hmm. From yeah. carbon monoxide poisoning. But it stopped just before he reached that saturation point. Mm-hmm. And the fresh air flow that took over in the cabin when the engine stopped making carbon monoxide, and down he came. I wonder if this guy wasn't overcome by fumes. Uh, and then maybe didn't set the pressurization correctly for the rest right. of the trip up. Uh, there's a lot that could have done this. But this thing of it circling one way or another makes me wonder if it wasn't looking for a VOR signal to try to get back on track towards Sarasota. Hmm. Interesting idea. That is interesting. What's uh, it? Uh, I'm sorry, Jeb. Go ahead. Yeah, that, you know, that's, as, that's as reasonable an explanation as any right now. Yeah. What's yeah. it like out there? What's the likelihood that they'll recover this aircraft? Depends on how deep the water is. Yeah. Um, from from what I understand, after it hit the water, it floated for a while. Yeah, I floated in nose down position. Uh, well, but I thought I saw something. One that story said it I sank. saw. One story I saw said it was still afloat after like an hour and twenty minutes. Yeah, but was not expected to be afloat by the time a rescue helicopter arrived. Yeah, this uh, WallStreetJournal.com WSJ.com story says it's fifteen hundred feet of water. So I don't know. that's within the realm of. Is it really? Uh, possibility i mean given what they've already spent on scrambling f-15s to follow this thing you know i mean that's you know not an awful lot more money kind of kind of depends on the I insurance guess. company actually more i guess than, more than the air force or yeah. anything else anyways okay well we'll follow this um everything we've said obviously is really speculative we're just kind mm-hmm. of you know you know um you know spitballing about this uh we'll wait to see exactly what happened but it'll be interesting to see if they discover anything about what happened here because it's well, got some I, interesting I, I head scratchers I sincerely hope that uh, they go down there and pluck that puppy off the bottom uh, because 
give the family some closure for one thing yeah. and and help us learn something from what happened here so that you know maybe prevent a repeat occurrence right right exactly. yeah real quickly what's the story about so uh, uh, typhoon uh, fighter planes uh were were scrambled to intercept what they thought at the time might be a hijacked aircraft, and it turned out that it was a helicopter that was accidentally squawking the wrong. Uh, he's, he flipped through oh, seventy five hundred. Yeah, and they squ- but but the but the, the punchline here is not that he accidentally squawked hijack. It's that these typhoons went supersonic and apparently pretty pretty dramatically rattled this helicopter. Um, this well, they, they they rattled a whole hell of a lot of. Uh, uh, residents the, of the United the, Kingdom too. The, yeah, the English countryside, as it were. Yeah, yeah. I guess is this. I mean, you don't sound very excited about this. It's it happened. I, I, um, I, I'm not excited about that. No. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> it's just more security theater. Yeah. Um, well, there's that. Yeah. You know. No. I'm not. Yeah. Okay. And and they don't have to go supersonic to wake you. And make you sorry that you even saw them. Yeah, okay, that's true. All right, then, how about this? Uh, Everyone's all excited about the fact that the uh, space shuttle, what was it, Discovery, um, did its little grand tour around the D.C. area a couple days ago. And uh, one little interesting sidebar story here, and if you looked close at a lot of the pictures, you saw that there was a T-38 trainer jet that was kind of flying chase, And according to one story I saw and some tweets that I saw, that T-38 almost ran out of gas during this grand tour and, in fact, had to ask to be expedited to land at Dulles before before the 747. Um, Have you you seen this story? Have you heard this story? Oh, yeah. Yeah. my, My first question is, is this a true story? Because when I was doing some research before our episode here, I can only find one report of this this so-called incident um and i actually find if you do a google search for for you know what did i do a google search for t38 jet runs low on fuel you only find two links to this particular incident and they both point to the same examiner.com story so i don't know did it really happen others have said this also and and uh i would be the least bit surprised so i don't know that's bad planning Um, Keep keep it keep in mind. Well, if bad planning uh, could be that you know, um, you know the slide rule just you know slipped a little bit when they were working all these details out, and uh, they're flying around high drag, low altitude configuration. Uh, he's going to be going through some gas, no question. And you know another you know ten minutes could have made the difference. I don't know what the what NASA's minimums. Are for that kind of an operation, I'm thinking maybe you know 15, 30 minutes. I don't know. Um, he's probably he could have could well have been in, you know a non a nothing burger in that. Hey, you know I'm within my 30 minute Thank reserve. You. Uh, if I don't say something, then my boss is going to yell at me. Oh, okay. There you go. Okay. So he's got to say something. Simply by virtue of you know their operational rules, yeah, uh, and right. he's he probably getting to bingo you know fuel it, doesn't, it doesn't sound like he landed and doesn't sound like he landed and, and flamed out on the runway and had to be towed to the ramp, right? 
Right. So it wasn't like he was within minutes of running out of gas. It's just that he was within whatever the window is, 30 minutes, exactly. and, and uh, he didn't I, want to have I, to fill I, out the forms, right? And uh, Yeah, I think Jeb's hit it right on, right yeah, on the head. That makes sense. And particularly with the, the, the slide rule error, uh, flown enough with other people who own kerosene burners, to recognize the grimace on their face when air traffic control wants them to descend below 20,000 feet right. 50, 60 miles sooner than they want to just because of what's going to happen to their fuel burn down low. I mean, it just gets astronomically higher for a lot of these aircraft when they get down below uh, 10,000 feet. Uh, and slowing down doesn't really gain them quite the proportional uh, increase in flight time that it does for us gas burners who never get up into the flight levels. Uh, so I think Jeb hit it on the money. Uh, first, the, they they may have made one or two more turns around the national capital area than they initially planned. Yeah. And the mission commander's going, oh, yeah, we're good. Go ahead. One more lap. Yeah. And the T-38 guy's going, okay, but now I have to say, bingo, fuel. Yeah. Okay. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Off-field landing of the week. Uh, we've got a couple people in the forums and, called and our... And it wasn't a T-38. No, it wasn't. Uh, a couple people in the forums, uh, DJ Torrente, or Torrent, I'm sorry, I, I know this guy too. I should know how to pronounce his name. Um, and, uh, oh, and, and DJ Torrent uh, uh, in the forums called our attention to a, a 152 that uh, uh, did an off-field landing out on Long Island. Um, a couple things are notable about this story to me. I mean, first of all, congratulations. The guy got it on the ground safely, and that's a good deal. Um, um, there's a flyaware track on this one too. Uh, this guy was cutting the corner, so he was coming from oh, he, like he took the shark route. Yeah, yeah he took the short route. Man. This is like I mean, you know, I I I've been the first to acknowledge that I am very feet wet Whoa. averse. All Whoa. right, I don't like doing Whoa. this. He was in the air four hours. Oh, for Pete's sake. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't catch that. Oh, maybe we're gonna take him off off field landing if he ran out of gas because he was flying too long. That's not a good thing. How, how He's can, on one fifty-two. Tell us how much gas a one fifty-two holds. Yeah, not about not four, four hours, hours. <laughs> or just barely four hours. Yeah, about four hours. Yeah, about he four hours. Of, he came out of Burlington, North Carolina, for the island. Is that what he was doing? Apparently, and he came up through the southern part of New Jersey and down around. I don't know what that what that area is called, but you know, halfway up the coast of New Jersey, he went feet wet and cut diagonally, sort of to the north. Yeah. Northeast towards the center of Long Island. Dave, you misheard me. You called it. You called it the short, short route. I called that the shark. Route. Yeah. No, I heard you say shark route. Yeah, <laughs> the shark route. But so he was like, I mean, so let's just put aside for a second the fact that he maybe was foolish and ran himself out of gas. Um, he went way out. I mean, to me, this is way out over the water. I, I would. The leg he filed four hundred eighty-seven statute miles. Okay. In a 152? All right. Come on. I guess we're not going to congratulate this guy afterwards. How much of a tailwind were you supposed to have to have, make that work? The other notable thing here is that when he discovered he needed to land, uh, he happened to find an airfield right below him. Uh, but it wasn't a regular airfield. It was an art radio-controlled model runway, um, which uh, uh, another forum post reports was about 500 feet long and so he landed on the model aircraft runway what what years ago we we were cackling about some story we uncovered where 
guy ran his airplane out of gas and the rammed it in a field or a highway and the local fire department responded and the paper actually printed a comment by the local fire chief saying something to the effect that it's a good thing there wasn't any fuel on board or he could have caught fire. <laughs> yeah, okay. So anyways... <laughs> <laughs> All right. I don't know. I'm, I think I'm going to reserve judgment on whether this is an off-field landing of the week well, because, you it, know. It's definitely an off-field landing of the week. Well, we'll give him credit for keeping his head about him and getting on the ground safely. Um, but he seems, on the face of it, it seems like maybe he brought this on himself. Well, now, you know, if there was anybody that deserved to be talking about bingo fuel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, see, that would have been the perfect segue. I wish I this, hadn't this missed that. This makes me wonder whether he knew how bingo his fuel was I, you know, when he I, was out there over the water. Boy, I'm telling you. That would have, oh, man, oh, man, okay. Uh, Four hours and a 152. I could fly, see, I could fly to Florida in a, couple, in a day on a 152. <laughs> Four-hour legs, man, there you go. I flew seven and a half hours in a 152. Yeah, but Jack, Jack, hang on a second. Jack, he didn't make it. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah, there's that. David, well, you did fly four hour, seven hour legs. What did you say? I flew seven and a half hours in a 152 once. Yeah, uh, and the luggage area was filled with red gasoline cans, right? But I did two hours and got gas. Then I did an hour to the target area, circled for an hour, and then a half hour to a different airport, got gas. Then I did the rest of the trip home. Uh, which, thank God, was a tailwind. Because uh, I'd been smoking out to the target area at a whopping 65-knot oh, cool. ground speed. If you Google the in number oh, yeah. what does it on say? this airplane, what does it the tell first you? link that pops up is the FBO that is renting it. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Um, <laughs> last week on the episode, we had a lot of fun uh, talking about uh, the upcoming Tom Cruise uh, sequel to uh, Top Gun. And uh, coincidentally came across an interesting... I hadn't realized that Tom Cruise is actually a pilot. Uh, you he, didn't know that? No, I didn't know that. Um, and... Uh, so he's apparently a pretty serious pilot with some 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 serious aircraft, including a P fifty one Mustang. And I came across this story in Forbes dot com that talks about uh, Tom Tom Cruise and how much he enjoys his uh, his P fifty one. And there's a, a YouTube video here about uh, showing him in his airplane. And uh, you know, I don't know. That's all I got. I just it was interesting um, that that Tom. Thomas, the joke I made was, you know, so they were crowing about the fact that Tom likes to take people flying in his in his P fifty one. My question was, is it's good as long as he doesn't do it while standing in the seat, All right, which is an Oprah joke. You had to be there, I guess. Um, yeah. <clears throat> well, this is, this is just really interesting, looking at this particular in-numbers track on FlightAware. Yeah. And if I'm reading this chart right, okay, he had a ground speed um, the last hour or so. He had a ground speed above 120 knots. That was steadily increasing and peaked out at, at around 140 knots. Really? Um, before it started trending back downward. Um, so, so if he hadn't had that tailwind, he would have been in the water. It would have oh. been a shark shark route. Yeah. Well, and Wikipedia lists the 152 range as 477 miles, 414 mm -hmm. nautical, 477 statute. Right. So he'd 
filed for longer than that. He must have been getting tailwind the whole way. <laughs> hey, y'all, watch this. <laughs> okay. But it's a cinch. He's not going to be flying with Tom Cruise anytime soon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you, David. I pre- thank you for hooking that back up. I appreciate it. <laughs> the pictures on the FBO website. This is just a basic VFR Cessna 152. Yeah. There, there's no long range nav in this airplane. Um, it's, looks like it's got an intercom, but uh, navcom and transponder is basically it. Mm-hmm. Not even an ILS. Well, okay. Well, that means it's light. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Shoutouts. Yeah. Got to wrap this is thing it up. Yep. Is that time already? It is that time. It is that wow. time. Yeah. Oh, man. What do we got uh, here? To the guy in the 152, I mean, you know, I, I hope you know that we're giving you a ribbing and yeah, good fun yeah. and good intention. And what the frack were you thinking? Yeah, a little bit of that, too. Exactly Bet right. Bet you don't do that again. <sighs> Sorry. That's okay. Uh, Shoutouts? Shout out. What a shout out. I've got one here that I really, and I confess I don't know a lot about this, but I heard from a listener about this particular subject, and so I want to kind of give it a little bit of airtime. Um, a listener told me about something called the Findlay, Findlay Air Rally that's taking place on June 9th, 2012. Welcome to the Findlay Air Rally's website. Oh, uh, that's cool. It, it, the Air Rally is a perfect event for aviators. Any kind of looking for a joy a day of competition, great food, and awards. The rally begins in the mornings where pilots sign their aircraft up for the race. Uh, David, what are you talking about? You're talking about this Air Rally's cool? Yeah. Then, yeah, you, then it, you apparently it, have digested more of it than I have. What, what's cool about it? Uh, it tests your knowledge of your airplane and your ability to file and fly according to that knowledge and the plan. Uh, that, it's, a, it's a fairly regular kind of format for air races and air rallies. Uh, some places they combine it with a poker run. You know, instead of just overflying the points and taking a picture, you stop, you get a card, and that's a second contest. But basically, they give you a route. You sit down with your knowledge of your airplane, your flight data, your E6B whiz wheel or whatever you use, your charts, and you plan your flight based on the day's weather, what you say your speed will be point to point and your fuel consumption, Mm -hmm. which requires a fairly specific knowledge, I mean, of your airplane. Mm -hmm. Jeb's intimate enough with Debbie to be able to do this. So to speak. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, I know how intimate he is. <laughs> no, no, okay. I've Fam- seen him in the morning. This is a family uh, podcast. Family podcast, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, it's it's almost like the game that I know Jeb and I and, and, and my buddy and a couple of us play. Before, we're, before we start a trip, we've got an idea of what our time's going to be, what our fuel burn's going to be, how long it's going to take us to get there. And the contest is with ourselves to see how close we can come to flight plan. Okay, this is just us competing on that personal basis with a bunch of other people around a course they they pick for us. 
Mm-hmm. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. No, it sounds cool. This is uh, on June 9th, and uh, it does involve some pre-registration, so if you want to play, you got to get in touch with them in advance. Um, June 9th, apparently it begins, or it is it is based at uh, Findlay Airport in Ohio, which is uh, Foxtrot Delta Yankee. And uh, let's see now, it says any pilot can be in the rally. It's a 200 nautical mile course, including one stop at a selected airport. Like I said, June 9th, Findlay Airport. Um Check it out. It's uh, FindlayAirRally.com. F-I-N-D-L-A-Y Air Rally, and that's L-L-Y. That's a neat idea. Um, uh, Yeah, that's a very neat idea. Yeah. Check it Um, out if you're in that area and uh, you're looking for something to do on June 9th. What else we got? Well, I was going to shout out to a a fellow Hoosier uh, whose birthday was this past Monday. Uh, he wasn't alive to enjoy it, but it was Wilbur Wright's 145th birthday. He was born in Millville, Indiana on April 16, 1867. Hell, half the folks still weren't home from the Civil War at that point. And it was celebrated down in the Outer Banks and in Ohio. And and uh, and it's good that, to know that people still remember that there's a whole lot of airplane stuff going on now that might have taken years longer to happen if it hadn't been for Orville and Wilbur. Yeah, absolutely. Jeb, you got anything? Not really. Then it's time to stick a fork in this one. Oh. Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, also an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, what have you been working on? Anything you can t- we can go look at? Uh... You guys, you guys know now that I'm going to ask you this question every week, you know. Well, I'm, and I'm drawing a blank on whether I talked about anything last week. Oh, so. I say the same thing over and over again every week, so go ahead. You know, uh, I, I will say that I got a nice little collection of stuff in the, uh, in the April World Aircraft Sales Magazine, which you'll find on the counter in most FBOs. Uh, look it up if you stumble across an avionics news for uh, April. Uh, got a nice little story there. Cool. Uh, and in general, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, avbuyer.com, aea.net, aviation safety magazine.com. Uh, let's see. I did see a wanted poster recently, but it was for a different Dave. So okay. I won't bring that one up. Jeb Burnside is a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor in chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, what are you working on? Um, working on uh, a couple of projects uh, that come from my uh, visit to D.C. a couple of weeks ago. Um, fi- finished one of them today, and uh, hopefully I'll get the other one done tomorrow. Uh, if not, it'll be uh, Monday, uh, you know, midday or something. But um, so just, you know, just trying to pick up the pieces from that and, and, and lick my wounds and uh, uh, get ready for the next uh, next big cycle in the magazine and, and some other projects that keep coming around. Yeah. Um, and so, in, in general, where can people find you on the internet? In general, people can find me on the internet at uh, jeburnside.com. Uh, day jobs and assorted sundry projects would be could be found at uh, aviationsafetymagazine.com, aea.net, sometimes avweb.com, uh, and sometimes um, um, you know local police blotter. Who knows? And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Please check out uh, my growing collection of uh, Kindle ebooks, or actually gen- ebooks in general. 
You can learn more about those at uh, Amazon.com slash author slash Jack Hodgson. You can also learn more general stuff about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Big thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan, Roy Searle, and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. We are also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big, big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings, webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, were you going to say something? Yeah. Uh, what's that again? Well, it's, it's, it's not the keys to uh, infinity or to living forever, but if you go fly, you'll live longer because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. AMFFM. The participants on this podcast are appearing as private individuals. Their comments don't reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything, 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 absolutely anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously, obviously, very general in intention. You should remember your training, consider your situation, and fly the aircraft. But you knew that.